Good morning. We're going to finish 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 today and get into chapter 2. So if you'd like to take your Bibles and open up to 1 Thessalonians, we'll finish chapter 1 and we'll get through um, a portion of chapter 2. Between 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, there are eight chapters. And after today, I'll have nine Sundays. So uh, I'll be covering a chapter a week. (laughs) Uh, Let's bow and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together with other um, Christians and others who are interested in your word. We know that... uh, Uh, You are the creator of all things. You created the world. You created everything in it. um, And you created us in your image. Um, And we are so grateful for the word that you've provided so that we can understand your character and have a view into your image so that we can know what we are to emulate. We are not holy like you are holy. Uh, We are not perfect like you are perfect. And we fall short. And we, uh, we know that you are a patient God. We ask that you would help us to learn what we can from the word that you've provided so that we can apply it in our lives as we try our best to emulate you. Um, help us to be a shining light in the community uh, in which we find ourselves, whether it's in this community of Christians or the community of people that we are around during the week at work or school or wherever it might be. And in our families, help us to make sure that Um, you are praised and held high. Forgive us of our sins so that we might stand before you in your sight as holy through the blood of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, um, just a quick, and I mean quick review. Paul was in Philippi, um, had difficulty in Philippi, uh, with, uh, with preaching the gospel there, was imprisoned. Um, Lydia and, her peop- and, and the people around her and her family were converted, the first converts in Macedonia. Um, Paul is, is imprisoned after healing a woman who had um, a gift. Um, and uh, after he was imprisoned and they found out that he was a Roman citizen, they were trying to get him to leave town peacefully and not make a big deal about it. Um, he eventually does. The jailer, of course, is converted, um, and he comes to Thessalonica. Thessal- Thessalonica, he preaches. Um, uh, I have a sense that since there was a synagogue in Thessalonica, there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, he had a, he had a broader audience that he could speak to right away um, rather than what he did down at the river in Philippi where he went to a place of prayer. Uh, I'm not sure what the audience there was, um, In the synagogue, we certainly know what kind of audience it probably was. And um, he was successful there. Uh, Many of the Jews were converted in Thessalonica, uh, as were many many Gentiles, men and women. But he ran into problems in Thessalonica, just like in Philippi, where the Jews, in this case, got very, very jealous 
um, they were uh, aggressive. Let's put it that way. They went to the point of actually going to the home where they thought that Paul and Silas and Timothy were staying and dragging out the owner of that home and taking him before the city officials and then eventually making him pay literally a bond to say uh, this bond you're saying, you're giving us your word, these people are not going to cause trouble in our city. Um, and, that's how that, and that's how he was released, how Jason was released. Um, they sneak Paul out of town at night and he goes on to uh, Berea um, and uh, we know what happens in Berea. The people in Berea were very noble. Uh, they studied their scriptures. The Jews, I think, is what that means there. The Jews in Berea were, were noble enough to study the scriptures and actually find out and determine whether Paul preached, what he preached was true. Um, so he called them more noble because they were more sincere in the way that they were considering God's word and comparing it to what Paul was teaching. Um, but the people in Thessalonica, the Jews in Thessalonica, follow him to Berea and they make problems for him in Berea. And um, he has to escape from Berea as well. And they took escorts and escorted him. Uh, the believers took escorts and took him all the way to Athens. Um, he gets to Athens, of course, and preaches a sermon about all these idols that are in the city. It's important because we're going to talk a little bit about that in this chapter at the end of it. Um, and he sees this one God, this one idol that says to an unknown God. The people in Athens are so superstitious that they want to make sure they, they have not left any God out. So I can just imagine this picture of this city with all these images throughout the city to the sun, to the moon, to the stars, to the land, to the sea, to the crops, to the fertility, to whatever it might be. If, if they could imagine it, they probably had an image for it. Or if it was something they wanted to do. Or if it was something they wanted to do, they weren't doing it yet, they had an image for it. And, it. and just to be sure, they had an image that said, and, and in case we missed anybody, in case we missed a God out there, we don't want him on our, uh, against us. We have an image there said an unknown God. And so Paul preaches this famous sermon in Athens about this unknown God who is the true God. Um, while he waits for Silas and Timothy to catch up with him, they go on to Corinth. Um, he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica to check on him because these so, so aggressive these Jews were. Um, physically beating these, these Christian believers up. And... Um, writes this letter then from Corinth that we're studying. So to give you that, per, that context, in his first chapter he says, um, just to read it, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We always give thanks to God for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly keeping in mind your work of faith and labor of love and perseverance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved of God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sakes. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word during great affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place the news of your faith toward God has gone out, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us as to the kind of reception we had with you and how you returned to God, you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is, 
Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Sorry, I meant to put that slide up there. So we got through some of this. I want to focus on a few of the, a few of the passages. I put a couple of these in the questions that were in last week's handout. Uh, for example, looking at verses 4 and 5, the question I asked was, how would you explain what Paul intends for the Thessalonians to take from verses 4 and 5? Verses 4 and 5 say... Um, Knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved of God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sakes. What's Paul trying to emphasize there, do you think, in those two verses? What's the takeaway for the Thessalonians? We talked a little bit about this, just to give, refresh yourself. We talked a little bit about this chapter, how that he's actually just received word from Timothy. Timothy has returned. He's encouraged by what Timothy tells him about the Thessalonians. They are still faithful in spite of all the opposition, physical abuse probably. They're remaining attentive to the things that he had taught them in the short time he was there for less than a month. And so he's writing these very encouraging introductory thoughts. And he comes to verse 4 and 5 and he says, um, as, I, as I, I said, Knowing, brothers and sisters, beloved of God, his choice of you, for a gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for, our sake, for your sakes. What's Paul saying to them there? What's he complimenting them about or encouraging them with? Sure. Good. We'll go there. You can be sure, Mike. I was just going to say that, as we all know, God has chosen us from the foundation of the world because He knows who's going to be called by His gospel. Sure. In that way, we're chosen. So, that's the phrase I wanted to key on. Just highlighted it for you. His choice of view. What's Paul saying there? Mike just said, as we know from the foundations of the world, God has chosen us. What's that mean? Does God choose? There are people who believe that you are chosen before you're even born. God has decided ahead of time who will be Christians and believers and who will not. Is that what Paul's saying here? So what is he saying here? If he chose us from before the foundations of the world. I agree. What does that mean? Who did he choose? Uh, let me move something here. Who did he choose? Louis? He chose those who choose to believe him. If you can't hear what Louis said, he said he chose those who choose to believe him. Agree? Yeah. That's right. He chose that those who would be saved, those who would take advantage of the blood of his son that he offered to all mankind, so all mankind could be chosen, could believe, but he chose that the ones who would actually be saved, whose relationship with God would be restored, would be those who accepted that gift. 
And so I do think what Wayne said is exactly right. He's confirming for them your, if you have a different version of the Bible, it might say election. The New King James, I think, says your election is sure. He's telling them, there's no doubt you are saved. You Thessalonians should have no doubt that you've been saved. His, cho his choice of you is not in vain. His choice of you is not um, invalid. But I want you to see what he said, how he, why he says that. How can he say that with such confidence? John, is that who's? Yeah. Well, I think there's an aspect to this that it's harder for us to see because we aren't surrounded with it like these Thessalonians and like most people throughout history. Our relationship with God, God is interested in that relationship, is different than anything else that anyone has ever come up with in any religion, in any interaction with God. This is, God is personally invested in them, in the relationship, in the fact that they have believed in Him and His Son. There, there's a relationship there that does not exist anywhere else in the universe, in any conception of man has come up. So it is a level of interest that God has in us right. that doesn't exist elsewhere. He didn't choose anything else that he created. He didn't choose the animals. I'm sorry. Cats and dogs. Sorry for you cats and dog lovers. He didn't choose anything else in his creation. He created all of us. He created all of humans. He created everything else. And in, in, I said in my prayer... He is the creator of everything. They only chose mankind from before the foundations of the world. Now here's the question, Mara, go ahead. Uh, when I first started reading this chapter, there's a lot of you, a lot of we, so I have highlighted under that. So this you is not like a, a universal plural you, mm -hmm. I don't think. It's I agree very with you. specific to the Thessalonian church. Um, I don't know exactly what that means. I'm going to go there. I'm glad you brought that up. Of course, that's where I want to go. Okay, good. Go so why does he say this with confidence to the Thessalonians? Why would this be encouraging specifically to the Thessalonians outside of a universal application that God chose all mankind to be saved through his son before he even created the worlds? And so for those who accept that, they are saved. They take advantage of that. But he's saying this specifically to the Thessalonians. You Thessalonians, there's something about you. And it, I want to see this because it applies to us too. What is it about the Thessalonians that Paul was so confident in that they were saved? Adam? You may not be answering that question, but go ahead. I think if you, as you read on in the verse, he's specifically talking about... Their departure from idols. Um, so I think there are certainly Thessalonians in this group that were Jews who became Christians. But it does seem, based on the full context of the verse, he is he, he talks about how they report about how you turn from God to you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. Um, and so he seemed especially intent on highlighting the fact that the Gentiles who turned to God were among the chosen 
um, which I think is important when you consider all the issues that are happening with the Jews. The Jews are not only chasing him out of teaching other Jews, but there's going to there's going to be a lot of pressure from the the Jews that become Christians. Are we going to accept these Gentiles in with us? And the fact here that he stresses so fully the Gentile acceptance and doesn't even exactly acknowledge the Jews that have become Christians. That, that's where I would I like that. I hadn't thought of that. I'm going to tie that into what I want to say, but that's a really, really good point that I was not even thinking of. I agree with, I agree with Adam, but I think if you back up to verse 3, that just totally, I mean, that, that's, you know, that's the umbrella. This yeah. is why he's chosen you, because, yeah, well. Because of your, because your work of faith and your yes. rainbow of love yes. and perseverance of hope. Yep. Micah, you know, that's, I thought that's like a hand go up. But... I'll say something to that. <laughs> <laughs> Good, good, right where I want to go. I think we're all hitting around it, all hitting on it. The very next words he says, how, do, how does he know the Thessalonians' election is sure, their, their, their choosing is not in vain? He's, he's saying, uh, uh, knowing his choice of you, being positive about it. It's because of what they did. It is because of their work of faith and their labor of love and their perseverance of hope. But it's in verse 5. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. What would that look like? If it was in word only, what would it look like? What does James say about when things are just in word only? You don't have any fruit. You don't have any labor. You don't have any um, work, if you will, that's apparent. Um, it's not, may not be obvious to the world. May even be hard to see among Christians. If you're Christians in word only, oh, I'm a believer. Well, are you one of the ones that are getting beat up when you're asked if you're a Christian? Or are you saying at those points of, inf of choice, oh, well, I, no, I'm not like those people. I'm, I'm not even sure how much I believe. I mean, what, what would, I, how would that look in the life of a Thessalonian? Their conviction was something that could be seen. How do I know that? Because of what comes next. What does he say in verses 6 and 7? You also became imitators of us. Wh who's us? Paul, Silas, and Timothy. What happened to Paul and Silas and Timothy? In Philippi. They were beaten... They were put in prison because they believed in a God strongly enough to be teaching others about what he was offering to all mankind. And they wouldn't back away from it. So they were beaten and they were put in prison. I am sure of your faith. I am sure of your belief. I am sure of his choice that you are one of the chosen because you didn't believe in word only but you believe in your very lives in the way you act in the way you, you labor in power in the Holy Spirit which makes me believe that there could have been people who had the ability that was passed on by Paul as one of the apostles to actually be doing something miraculous don't know what, doesn't say 
and with full conviction. Just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sakes. We didn't back away from teaching. You have not backed away from teaching. We didn't back away from professing what we believed. You have not backed away from confessing what we believe and, and that being displayed in your life. Confession is not just a word only. Confession is the way you live your life. Does your life look like you are a Christian? That's what Paul's saying. If Paul came here and spent time among us, would he say this about us? Does our life look like we really believe? And not just when we're with each other, but when we're on our own. And when society is counter to what we believe. In fact, when society makes it difficult for us to actually continue to display our faith. We have not come to the point where people are being arrested and beaten for being a believer in Jehovah and his son. But I think any of us would admit that in the last few years, the pressure point of admitting you believe in God has increased. And it is starting to make its way into our lives in ways that we may not find comfortable. It's one thing for me to have to accept what society believes about some things. It's another thing for them to demand of me that I celebrate those things and applaud those people who make those sinful choices. How's that going to look? I'm telling you, these people, Paul said, their choice was true because of their conviction. And it wasn't in word only. It was in the way they lived their lives. So much so that not only did they become imitators of us in the Lord, having received the word during great affliction with joy, but they became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord is sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but every place the news of your faith toward God has gone out. And then he has this little phrase, so that we have no need to say anything. We don't have to tell anybody anything about you when we go places, because they already know about you. Wow. And I said last week, do you think churches have reputations? Churches have images? What do people say about us or the church where you go? Or you individually? Because that's what it comes down to. Do you individually, do I, do you believe so that on my own, I would not back down? I'll take the beating. I'll take the insults. Would you? Would I? We've not gone this far, have we? Hmm. These people were amazing. And Paul was so worried about them. 
when he was only with them for such a short time that within months he gets to Corinth and sends this letter, sends Timothy first and then sends this letter and tells them basically as we said earlier how proud he is without saying how proud he is of who they were remaining to be. Man, this would be such a kickoff of such an encouraging letter to hear. You people are doing far more. I was so worried and it's so good to hear and it had to be so encouraging for Paul. Barry. I think it's interesting there too is that you receive the word of great affliction and then ask for the joy of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Uh, it's our joy in what the Spirit has brought us yeah. that enables us to go through the affliction we're looking for. Right. Uh, but we're enjoying what we have and we're looking for both. Both, yes. In this life and in the life to come. And where does he say... Do not quench the Spirit. Who does he write to, Paul, and say, do not quench the Spirit? Hmm? We'll get to that. It's just amazing how much this letter is connected, Alan. And he references the affliction they're suffering now, but the whole source, even though they're afflicted now, the last verse says to rescue from the wrath to come. Oh, yeah. So you yeah. may endure wrath here, but it will nothing be compared to the wrath to come. Correct. So the last thing I want to say about this chapter has to do with, um, well, we're going to go through a bunch of slides here that I actually highlighted what we just went through. So let me just catch up with myself. All right. To what Adam said there, how you turn to God from idols to a living God to wait for a son from heaven. All right. So to close this chapter out, I had asked a question about, the last question I asked, did verse 9 and 10 connect with any of the verses in this chapter? Here's where I'm going with this. I'll just, I'll just speed through this. We started this chapter by talking about a work of faith, a labor of love, and a perseverance of hope. Paul is, and of course the Holy Spirit guiding him, such remarkable beauty in the way that they, they write sometimes and connect principles. I have this in my Bible. I learned it a long time ago from somewhere else, from someone else. And, and I remember him saying, if, if you've ever been through a class with me on Thessalonians and you don't have this marked in your Bible, I have failed. And so I have it marked in my Bible. And so I'll just pass that along to say, when Paul says, I am constantly keeping in you in mind, I'm constantly keeping in mind your work of faith. And we ask, what would that look like? I think he answers it at the end of this chapter when he says, your work of faith caused you to turn from God, uh, to God, from idols. Your work of faith looks like Physically, you turned away from the idols you were worshiping and you started worshiping God. Your labor of love is pointing to serving a living and true God. That's a labor of love. We love God because he first loved us. So the reaction of, of a human heart to the gospel when softened and receptive is one of appreciation. And finally, their perseverance of hope should be obvious to wait for his son from heaven. Right in this chapter, he literally tells the Thessalonians these things. I am so thankful for your work of faith, your labor of love, and your perseverance of hope, which looks to me like 
turning away from idols to a true God in response to the love that he showed you by sending his son this is your labor of love and your hope is one that's persevering it's hanging in there it's enduring whatever version you may have because you're waiting for him to come again and that's how this chapter closes for me that's how I wrap this one up any other comments before we move on chapter 2 And let's move on to chapter 2. I targeted getting through the first 12 verses this morning. We'll see. Um, let's start by just reading these first 12 chapters. So on the basis of what we just finished, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our reception among you was not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been treated abusively in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not intending to please people, but to please God, who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is our witness, nor did we seek honor from people, either from you or from others, though we could have asserted our authority as apostles of Christ, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. In the same way, we had a fond attraction for you and were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our lives because you'd become very dear to us. For you recall, brothers and sisters, our labor and hardship. It was by working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you that we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly and rightly and blamelessly we behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So the first thing I asked as we read that, I always like to know what people's first thoughts are. Um, connecting it to chapter 1, any first thoughts? Why is Paul, and I asked this question, what do you believe Paul's trying to accomplish in these verses? So he's just written an opening, um, an opening, if you will, paragraph of his letter to the Thessalonians. We've just completed it. And now he turns a little bit of his attention to something a little different. And what is it that you think he's doing? What do you think he's trying to accomplish? What do you pick up in this section? I ask, what words and phrases or principles does he use to try and accomplish that? Whatever it is you think he's trying to accomplish in these verses. Adam? I, I haven't decided yet what he's trying to accomplish, but um, I love the language in verse 7. It talks about being gentle uh, as, a, as a nursing mother is tender with her children. I think there's, talk about a word image that um, most everyone is familiar with and kind of transcends. <clears throat> So sometimes the farming examples are we get in the Bible, it's sometimes it's difficult. Like, I don't farm. My dad did some, I guess. But 
And we, we all, kind of throughout time, will understand this thing. Sure. No matter where we live, no matter what culture we're in, even, usually there's something about that that's universal. John? I think Paul's trying to tell him, I'm not after your money. That's certainly one of the things he says, that's for sure. point here to say, look, I'm not after your money. I want you to believe. Which was just to throw it, I wasn't going to talk about this, but sometimes that was a um, that was what would make some people um, not think an individual was credible. Well, if you're not letting this pay you, then you must not be um, a credible teacher. Because that's what happened in those days. People went around teaching and they got paid for it. Well, if you're not going to let us pay you, then you must not be worthwhile to listen to. Right? So, anyway, he always had to fight that balance of, but he did say that. I'm not here for, my, I'm not here for your money. I think that's Paul's saying, I'm not here for the money. Yeah. I want to teach you something. Yeah. They, they may have had the attitude, someone's after money, because that's what they've been hit with. That's a good point. So what else? Alan? He's reaffirming his, his commitment to them and reminding good. them of the commitment that he made. Mm -hmm. the, the mother, the father, all those examples. Good choices. Anything else? I, I, I would put this under an umbrella that says relationships. He's trying to recommit, re remind them, if you will, of his relationship with them. It was not for money. It was as a father, a mother, a nursing mother. He uses all these phrases and principles to talk about his relationship. Theodore Roosevelt was, was, was quoted as saying, um, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. This is what Paul's doing here. People won't care how much you really know about the scriptures or anything else if it's not um, because you care about them. And so he, Teddy Roosevelt said that. D. Bowman's a preacher in Texas. He used to take that phrase and he said, it's all about the people. Everything, everything we do, everything God has done is about the people. And as Christians, when we imitate him, everything we should do should be about the people. So Paul's just, I think, this chapter is the beginning. Remember in the chart, if you will, for those that are familiar with the chart, this is all still pointing backward. Um, the first three chapters are sort of looking back at some things. And Paul's emphasizing here the relationship he had with them and still has with them, uh, but that he had with them when he was with them. That they should be able to recognize these things. So those are the things I would think of. You all hit on everything I would have thought of as far as these phrases that he uses, these images that he uses, principles that he uses. I think it's all to, to um, emphasize the relationship. And isn't that what God wants with us too? A relationship? Wouldn't this be God saying us the same things to us? I have, I have given you my son. I have treated you like a nursing mother or like a father. I want what's best for you. I have so much to give you. If you would just come to me and have a relationship with me. I just see God in so many different ways in that way, but that's what this chapter seems to me to be about. Mike? I was just going to say, with me in my life, I've just seen God is so patient. Because it took me 20 some odd years to get off tobacco. Yeah, he's patient with us all. That's a long, long time. 
and I promised it way back when that I would quit it. But I didn't immediately obey it. Any of us that have uh, things in our lives that are difficult to overcome can appreciate that. God is so patient with us when we slip um, and return to some of those things. I think he's patient with people that we love that haven't yet responded to the gospel. He gives them another day. He gives us another day to reach out to them. He gives others another day. That's the patience of God. Cheryl. I think it's interesting that Two. He talks about trying to trying to teach the word with opposition. Mm. In other words, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have people that are going to oppose you in every word, every way that you go. Yeah. It wasn't already as we talked about in chapter 1 it wasn't easy for him in Philippi it wasn't easy for him in Thessalonica it ended up not being easy for him in Berea um, I would say it's hardly ever easy um, sometimes it's even not easy among our brothers and sisters but it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things you're going to have to face as a Christian living a life, teaching others is not always um, easy it will come with opposition. And what did Jesus say about it? If you're going to, is it easy? Let me ask you this question. I thought of this while I was studying this week. Is it an easy decision to become a Christian? That's sort of a tricky question, isn't it? <laughs> is it easy to make the decision, I want to become a Christian? That is easy. And then to do it. <laughs> there you go. What did. So, and what did Jesus say about people who don't count the cost? Remember what he said? The members of your old household will be your enemies. If you're not willing to pick up your cross, bear your cross, and follow after me, you're not ready. If, you're, if you will not love me more than your parents or your brothers and sisters, your family... Or anything else in this life, he says it the other way around, then you haven't counted the cost. So, yeah, it's a, it's a heavy decision. It's a serious decision, I guess is what I'm saying about it. It's not, a, it's not a whimsical decision. It's not a decision we take lightly. It shouldn't be. It shouldn't be. Because we need to count the cost. Yes? There you go. And that was going to be my second question. So it might be a little easy to make that decision, especially on what, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, I, I, you know, when he talks about all the things that whether neither height nor depth nor all those things, the powers that could be, none of those can separate us from the love of God. Makes it easier to say, then I want him on my side. I want to be a Christian. Is it easy to stay a Christian? Is it easy to walk the life of a Christian? Were these Thessalonians having an easy time? <laughs> That's what comes to mind when I think about this, when it says, Cheryl, to your point about the opposition. Absolutely. Which is really hard 
to think that you might have to break up some of these relationships, or they will do it for you. They will break up their relationship with you because you're following Jesus. They will. They might want, not want to have that. anything to do with you, Mara? describing how he has been um, working properly. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to please people, but to God, to not ask for funds and stuff like that. Um, and then later on in the chapter, it will more describe his labor, both your labor gloves and your endurance. Did Paul, I know this is, a, is, a, is, a, is going to be a, a really fundamental question. Um, did Paul ever go anywhere that he never had to defend himself after he left? <laughs> Let me put it that way. Be real clear about that question. In Corinth, didn't he have to, he spends 18 months in Corinth, and doesn't he later have to kind of defend himself to the Corinthians? In the first part of chapter, of, of, of 1 Corinthians. Because who was, what was happening? People would come in behind Paul and they would discredit him. Kind of to John's point, when you talk about not asking for money, they'd even use that to say, what are you listening to this guy for? He doesn't even charge for what he teaches. Or they would say he wasn't really a prophet. Or he'd say they have some other, that he had some other motives. So was it already so soon after Paul has left Thessalonica, he gets to Corinth, he's been there now a few months, maybe half a year, I don't know how long, but it's been a short time. He writes this letter back to the Thessalonians after Timothy's been there and checked on them, gotten really good news about them. Does it sound a little bit like he's already having to defend himself? Or at least his methods? It sounds a little bit like it, but not as much as he did in some of those other places. Anyway, let's move on. In verse 3, since we're, since we're there, in verse 3 he says, For... Um, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. I ask that question. What does he mean by that? It fits into this theme. But specifically, why does he use those three things? Our teaching, our exhortation, our appeal, it might say in the um, ESV. What we brought to you, what we taught to you, what we tried to persuade you to believe was not from error or impurity or way of deceit. Those are three, dis three distinct things he has. So why error? What's he saying about that? Let's just take them one by one. Didn't come from error. What does that mean? It's not a false teaching. I'm not, the, what I taught you is not based on false, false beliefs, false doctrine, this is not false. So what you were taught, what, what I and Sylvanus or Silas and Timothy taught you while we were there was not based on false doctrine, false, a foul, false foundation. Impurity. What was he saying about impurity there? It's not also based on what? It's not based on my motives were pure. I'll just say that. I had no ulterior, ulterior motive for teaching what we taught you. I only had one thing in mind when I taught you what we taught you, and that was to, to teach.
teach you what God has done for you and what the extent that he's gone to so he can have a relationship with you. Again, thinking in mind of the mood he sets in this chapter, as a father would his child, as a mother would a nursing child. I had no other motive. And that's why I said, and it wasn't from, and that's why I think he ends with, it's not from deceit. I wasn't trying to trick you. This was not based on falsehood. It's not, my motives were pure. I had no intent to trick you. We'll stop right there because the next words that I want to ask about is the next word he says is he uses the word flattery. I didn't use flattery. Just give you a clue. You may think that this is something you've heard before. This is the only place in the whole Bible where this word is used in Greek. What did Paul mean by this word? It's not the same as in Corinthians when he says, if you're thinking this, it's not the same in Corinthians where he says, I didn't come to you with persuasive speech. That's different than what he says here. He says flattery. Think about that. Thank you for your time and your attention. Comments this morning. Really appreciate it.